Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with John Groshaw. It's uh, March 16th, 2020. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, first question, most important question, uh, why wine? Um, it's a good question. Uh, you know, it's just something that always captivated me. It's, um, uh, or I shouldn't say always, but something. I started working in restaurants when, uh, in my uh, early 20s and uh, was very interested in food and wine and and going back before that I, I, I was fortunate to have a mother who was a great cook uh, and this is you know uh, an unusual thing in the 70s and 80s uh, I have memories of coming to school with my lunch and having a sandwich on a croissant you know in 1980 uh, it was very unusual people you, usually you were made fun of in junior high school if you brought your lunch but people were uh, uh, jealous of mine but um, so I've always liked good things good food and um, so working in a restaurant I uh, uh, started learning more about wine uh, and and also living in France uh, for a while and just seeing how it's a part of a part of the culture there, very much fabric of the culture. It's just uh, that, that enjoyment, that sharing, and uh, it's, it's on the dinner table. Um, but uh, working in a restaurant and really getting further than just the enjoyment and understanding how it's the combination of um, agriculture, a growing season, um, the, the subtle adjustments of uh, fermentation, what we do, aging, and so forth. I mean, just seeing all the little pieces going into it, it was very captivating, and so I just went after it. So tell me about before wine. I know you had some, mm -hmm. other, you had some other things even before restaurants. Tell me about kind of your other other early interests uh, before getting into restaurant the restaurant biz. Uh, well, I was never a great student. Uh, never uh, enjoyed academia. I've always somebody who um, learned on as on their own. I'm on my own. I. I was very frustrating to my parents. Uh, but I got into racing bicycles when I was a teenager and I, I was good at it and um, raced in France for a couple of years and, uh, and while not good enough to become a professional cyclist, I, I was good enough to go uh, pretty far and just being able to see the world more and um, you know the restaurants are the the flexible work schedule of restaurant um, and working nights, not days, was really kind of funded that that pursuit. Um, but really, it was um, bike racing, food, and then wine. It's it pretty pretty simple. Do you remember what it was about wine at first? Uh, you said you mentioned like the kind of enjoyment, and then getting beyond the enjoyment. Was there something about it that? brought you in at the, at the beginning before you started to learn about it? Well, the the enjoyment, yes. I mean, just uh, the, 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 the nature of how it's enjoyed um, first. But then um, 
tasting uh, two different wines side by side uh, from different grapes or from different regions and seeing how hugely different they can be in flavor profile and how they feel and express on the palate uh, was just uh, captivating that, uh, that sometimes two different or the same grape in two different locations can be so hugely different and that was really, I just wanted to know how and why. Uh, so it just started reading and tasting and talking to people and asking questions. Um, the fortunate thing about working in fine dining in Portland, Oregon uh, in, in the early 90s, it was uh, a lot of winemakers coming through the restaurant. And when you start asking a lot of questions of winemakers, you usually get uh, offers to come uh, volunteer. <laughs> we like volunteer labor. <laughs> um, but no, it was, which was wonderful. I loved it. And um, uh, learn more, get behind the curtain a little bit and start picking brains and, and slowly uh, understanding more of it. And, but also realizing you know nothing. Mm -hmm. And just, I don't know, it's very interesting. Uh, just captivated and kept going. Tell me, tell me about the Portland restaurant scene when you came into it. It's obviously before what it is now, of course, is mm -hmm. a well-known kind of place for people to come and, and eat and drink. Uh, fairly early on, uh, what was it like in the 90s? Well, I was had the good fortune of working at Higgins Restaurant, and he was really at the forefront. Craig Higgins was at the forefront of um, farm-to-table cuisine uh, and you know using only things that are local, well, not only local, but in season mm -hmm. and by and large local. Um, he was also just a great teacher, or is still, I would imagine. So, but, um, uh, so we were one of the few restaurants, I mean, in Portland, it was Higgins, Paley's, Wildwood, and Zephyro at the time. Uh, and only Higgins and, and Paley's, you know, those are those were the the people who started that movement in in Portland, and I had the good fortune of working there. And the funny thing about it is the only reason I got that job, I had no experience, is because I knew Greg Higgins from riding a, a bike. I used to work at a bike store, and I. I, I repaired his bike, <laughs> so that's how I got that job. I had no experience, and it was just a, as a busser at first. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, tell me about the. Uh, I'm curious, uh, learning that kind of job on the fly and, and getting into the food and wine part of it. How how did you progress from busser into uh, further into that industry? Well, I at that point I think I knew a little bit about food, but I probably again asking the right questions and just showing interest and um, willingness to to learn and thirst for it yeah so what point did you know you wanted to volunteer in, in the wine industry oh well pretty quickly as soon as the offer came up I didn't even know it was like really you can do that oh my god it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't um, yeah, it was a, I wasn't put off by it. I was very excited by it. I just didn't even know that was a possibility. So um, very quickly. So where did you get started? Uh, well, in volunteering, gosh. Uh, I mean, I had Brickhouse and uh, Cameron and Jake Christopher. And, um, yeah, but my first harvest job was actually in California. Um, I went to uh, Sonoma, uh, worked at a place called Deerfield Ranch uh, in Kenwood, and I went there 
because I was thinking I would maybe go to UC Davis. Uh, I, uh, so I thought I'd move down there, work Harvest, then work in restaurants in San Francisco and gain residency mm -hmm. before going to uh, school. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'd worked the Harvest and I worked in restaurant, but uh, after um, six months or so, I, I made the decision that uh, the relationship uh, that I had just um, started again um, uh, before I'd left uh, was more important, so I came back here and well, we've been married almost 19 years now, so it's, it worked out well. <laughs> Good decision. Yeah. Tell me about that first harvest experience. Uh, what did you what, what What did you do? What was it like for you getting into the industry that way? Like, was it what you expected? Um, yes and no. It was as you would guess now a lot of cleaning, and they really want. I think they kind of gave you a trial by fire, where the first things you did were the worst things, just to see if you would stick. And uh, I think I spent the first day working cleaning buckets. Uh, these are buckets where it had been used for a picking uh, the day before, so they're covered with juice that had been dried out in the sun overnight. So I was on a pallet in some dirt with a power washer wearing a wet <laughs> rain suit, power washing buckets that Quite honestly, if they had rinsed them the day before, just with the hose, it would have been fine. <laughs> but they let them get sticky and, and crusted. So yeah, um, uh, so yeah. I mean, that part wasn't exciting, but it's that's work is work. You know, you, you do it, and eventually it got more interesting after they they gave me that little um, trial and, and a few others. Um, you know, we started having some tastings of barrels and so forth and learning, you know, not unlike I talked about before, we're tasting Cabernet from some vineyard on one facing west, one facing east, you know, two different vineyard blocks and so forth and, and really seeing those differences in, in a more focused, you know, not in a finished wine, but in an unfinished wine and then seeing how blending worked a little bit and yeah, so it just can they were hard and they were giving at the same time, mm -hmm. yeah. So once you came back to Oregon, what happened next? Uh, I went back to the restaurant and uh, was, worked harvest at Erath, and that was in 2000. Um, and that was, uh, that was a, a great experience. I mean, Tyson Crowley was the cellar master at the time, and he remains a good friend. Um, and Rob Stewart uh, was the winemaker at the time and also a friend. Um, and uh, yeah, I learned uh, less about winemaking and more about logistics there because we were making 50,000 cases of wine in a 25,000 case winery. So you learn how to make stuff happen <laughs> when you don't have room. And that's quite honestly some of the best uh, experience one needs. I mean, you can read uh, and talk to people, um, but you, it's, it's hard to learn about figuring stuff out as needed um, without actually being doing it, and that was uh, very helpful. So at this point, had you, had you started to think about doing this for yourself at some point? Had production, was, was production where, you, where your kind of heart was at this point? It was, yeah, yeah, and at that point, um, after so Deerfield Ranch is a pretty small winery, you know, maybe five or six thousand cases. 
And after ERATH, seeing that level of production, it, it, it didn't interest me as much because there was less eye uh, on details. Mm -hmm. It was more, uh, you have to be more broad mm -hmm. in your approach to everything, um, more prophylactic um, rather than um, just main staying on top of, because you just can't stay on top of everything. So uh, working there uh, really made me want to have my own small winery um, rather than work for large production. So where did you head next? Uh, Brickhouse Vineyards, which was uh, wonderful because it was small. Uh, but also the nice thing about Brickhouse was uh, up until that point, I'd only worked in wineries, and uh, the grapes came and we made the wine. At Brickhouse, I worked in the vineyard mm. and the winery, and so I, I started learning more about viticulture, and, and Doug was very, um, again, very good at education, um, like Greg Higgins, and um, he uh, uh, was, help yeah, helped encouraging me to get to educate myself more on vineyard because in telling me that it's really about the vineyard and you hear that um, but from many people but uh, it, it really comes down to it or you I sorry I I started understanding it more while mm -hmm. working there mm -hmm. um, understanding what we were doing and how it affected the wines and so forth so two very different wineries there both in terms of, of size and in terms of kind of style Mm -hmm. So are there, uh, there are there interesting differences between the two that you sort of took away from as you moved forward? Well, yeah. Well, Doug also, you know, certified organic from the start. And then while we were there, converting to biodynamics, um, very, uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, it's because I don't own my own vineyard, if, if we can't have 100% organic or biodynamic, but... Um, it's something that greatly interests me in the long run. Um, if someday I own a vineyard, it would definitely be organic and perhaps even biodynamic. Um, although the, the jury's out on biodynamics as far as um, what it, uh, how helpful it is. But uh, what I take from biodynamics is that you have less ability to react and it just promotes very thorough um, and uh, just farming that is very intentional mm -hmm. and very regimented because uh, you you don't have fixes available to you in uh, organics and, and even more so in biodynamics. So you just have to be smart and always on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, so great attention to detail. Um, but uh, but yeah, just um, from working with Doug, it's it's about uh, you know farming well, picking at the right times. You know, if you farm well and pick at the right times, you don't have to do a whole lot. Is a nice thing, you know. And and for me, you know, because I know in vineyards, it made me learn like I have to work with the right farmers to make my life easy. Um, if if I work with people who farm well, you know, well vineyards that are planted in the appropriate places who are um, being farmed by people who do do good work, then my job is very easy in the winery. I'm curious along the way, you mentioned a lot of, obviously a lot of fairly big names in Oregon wine now, Tyson and, and mm -hmm. Rob Stewart and, and Doug and others. Uh, I'm curious, were they encouraging of you in terms of 
having your own thing down the road? Did they did they tell you that would be a good idea? Did they discourage you? Did they warn you? You know, they. It was also. I mean, when I started in two thousand two, and it was a different time then, and it was really easy to sell wine then. There wasn't much competition. <laughs> the economy was booming. Uh, so people were not discouraging. I mean, right now, if people ask me, I'd be rather discouraging. Um, or not necessarily discouraging, but definitely, you know, limit, would limit people's scope mm -hmm. um, and scale. Um, yeah, but they they were definitely encouraging and, and downright helpful. Uh, Doug was in, in um, you know helping me source things, helping me you know figure out how do you do this, how do you do that, what are these steps, and, and so forth. So, yeah, no, I I was tremendously lucky um, to have that. And quite honestly, if I look back on it, I started maybe a year or two before I should have. Um, but that's very much my personality. It's just go for things and figure it out. It's, I like to, uh, I like the trial by fire. Why do you say a year or two too early? Is it just you weren't ready yet? Oh yeah, I still had a lot to learn. And um, I, I, honestly, when I started, I didn't, other than making good wine, I didn't have a firm idea of what I wanted to do exactly, stylistically. Um, all I knew is I wanted to make wine and I wanted to make good wine. Um, so I kind of figured that out, that out over the first few years. And, um, uh, and then probably the next three to four years kind of figured out exactly how to do it. So I was fortunate um, that we were in a time where you, people had ex less expectation over you being highly focused on what you wanted. Now it's a little bit different. Now you kind of really need to have a plan in place and uh, know how to execute it fairly well. I mean, yes, there's some latitude, but no, you have to know what you want and know how to get it by and large. So tell me about starting your own label. You, you mentioned you kind of jump in, trial by fire. Uh, tell me about the logistics, finding a place to make your wine, finding finding grape sources, finding mm -hmm. you know a label, all, all those kinds of things. Uh, well, I think once again, uh, my relationships in restaurant, just knowing people, um, it was relatively easy. I, I started at Cuneo Cellars in. Uh, um, well, which is now Connor's Feast mm -hmm. uh, in Carlson, uh, using that space. And uh, I don't even remember how I met Gino uh, Cunio at the time. Um, you know, it was just talking to somebody who's like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so. It wasn't, there were no classified ads or anything like that like, uh, right now. Um, but the, uh, it was just talking to people and uh, people knowing me and yeah, I. It just happened, and then you know Eric Homaker is somebody I talked to about grapes, uh, and he hooked me up with a couple of vineyards that he worked with. He had a little extra of, and Doug uh, was kind enough to sell me a, a small ton of grapes in my first year, uh, Brickhouse Vineyards, and um, and then oh, and then actually I met Don Haggy somehow of Vidon Vineyard and I bought some grapes from him on his first uh, crop from his vineyard and he and I and a friend picked it ourselves. Uh, yeah. I, honestly, I don't remember how it all happened. <laughs> it just did. You just talk to people. How did the first vintage turn out? Good. Not, not as, uh, not 
how I wanted it, but um, there was one vineyard source that uh, was picked early, and quite honestly, I didn't know enough to know it was being picked early. Um, I thought it was a picked early, but I was also, I was buying it from another winery and who was managing the vineyard, or at least the, the yeah, they were managing the whole vineyard. And um, I thought it was gonna be on the early side, but it was their call and I'm not gonna go up against them mm -hmm. because I know this much and they know this much. So I'm just gonna let that, and you know, in hindsight, and that was about 40% of the whole vintage and in, in, in hindsight, yeah, it was definitely picked early. And mm -hmm. also in hindsight, I probably could have done better with how I approached it because I had no experience with how to approach this early picking. So, uh, but uh, by, uh, I, I was happy with the vintage. It was a little bit more supple and just generous than I wanted it to be. I wanted it a little more firm and tight. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about your about that style. You mentioned that you kind of had an idea you wanted to make good wine, but you weren't really sure beyond that. Did you have a, did you have a profile in mind? Did you have a, a style in mind was, when you got started? Well, I like old world wines better than than the New World wines by and large. So I, I do like a little bit more balance of fruit and earth. Um, I like, you know, good acidity, but, you, you know, I just want a, a balance of generosity and tannic structure. Uh, I don't want it to be all about power and fruit. I want a uh, mid-weight mid Pinot Noir that isn't, um, that's uh, ever evolving in the glass. It's highly aromatic and um, yeah, a little bit more lithe than most. Just not um, not overly aggressive wines for the dinner table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that was from the from the start. That was kind of what you were going for. Yeah, from the start. Uh, that's the general idea. Yeah, <laughs> is of what I've always liked. But um, you know, not knowing at the you know in the beginning, not knowing what uh, vineyard sourcing would get me there the best. Uh, as far as AVAs, of course, there weren't really sub AVAs yet at that time. Um, They're in process, but um, but people knew different soil types and so uh, how those would um, affect the grapes. So tell me about the, the growth then of your, of your business. You, you obviously you've had to make, we've made wine to various, various different places. Uh, did you have a growth plan in mind when you started? And tell me about kind of the progression of, of Rocha. Yeah, we started with 300 cases and the goal was to get up to about 3,000 as quickly as possible uh, because I figured at that point it would be enough for it to be a full-time job. Mm -hmm. um, we, so every vintage was, you know, uh, profits were invested into growth. I didn't, you know, it was a, a third job essentially. I, I was still working in the wineries, I was still working in the restaurants and as I grew I, I started kind of weaning off the other jobs. So first, uh, so by 2004 I left Brickhouse just before the harvest in 2004 because I was going to be producing enough that I um, I just needed to focus on it. But I kept working in restaurant until 2008. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to 2008 I was up to 3,000 cases. Um, and that's, yeah, that's when I left, which was just the perfect timing <laughs> 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 to, uh, 
Yeah, to uh, all of a sudden leave my income behind. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, but I had also started a winery in the city of Portland in partnership with uh, the Bodeckers, Stuart and Athena, mm -hmm. and uh, my overhead uh, situation changed uh, quite a bit. So uh, the yeah, it was very difficult uh, during that uh, recession, and uh, our my plan went out the window. So we chose to grow. Um, grow in low price points, and that's where the commuter cuvee brand or uh, label came from. And uh, uh, we just uh, needed wine to move, and we needed it to, and only wine at, at low price points was moving. So we put out, I think, around 1,200 cases of it in uh, 2009, and um, and then it just kept growing from there. And now we're doing over 8,000 cases of that a year. And that's that's what we're known for, and uh, also a big change is being known for a low margin, low price point wine changes the economics quite a bit. And also, you know, when you when you start, nobody starts a business uh, in the beginning anyway. Nobody starts from the ground um, with the goal of making a low price point wine. They want to make something special, mm -hmm. and so we had I had to change, you know, my my way of thinking um, because. I just didn't want to be known for an inexpensive wine, and of course, inexpensive by Oregon standards. I mean, it's still twenty dollars or thereabout, um, which isn't cheap for most people. Uh, I understand this, but um, so I, I just, uh, yeah, I kept focusing a small portion of my business, uh, an increasingly small portion. Now, about twenty percent of my business uh, still on single vineyard wines and different varietals and so forth, but. The bulk of my business is is the community vape brand. You mentioned being in Portland uh, at that point, uh, at the point of the recession. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the Portland wine scene like from a consumer perspective? Was it were people did people come find you? Was it was it fairly? Tough no. at that point still? It was still tough, and our location was not conducive to. Um, to, to retail. Uh, we were in industrial northwest Portland and it's kind of a part of Portland that people just don't even know exists. It's really, it's interesting. I mean, you would think that people would know it's there, but um, it was hard to draw people there for uh, events even though we had great parking on the weekends. There's nothing going on in evenings, but um, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was not easy to to create that that draw. Um, really, what I it, it was Tom and Kate Monroe when they came in in 2010 um, that really kind of got that retail scene going. And, and before that, there was Enso Winery, which is a wine bar and mm -hmm. so forth. But it, it, what it proved is that you you it needs to be a restaurant wine bar that has a winery, not a winery that has a tasting room mm -hmm. in the city. And I've spent enough time in restaurants to not want to own one. Um, so, um, but yeah, that's what it really needs. But uh, we, yeah, at the time, you know, there, well, Hip Chicks do wine and then 12 Bridges and gosh, who else? Clay Pigeon. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a, quite a few people in the city, but um, um, really, it's the ones that have full-on restaurants that, that, that work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So where else, you mentioned, I know you've, before you got to your current space, you've mm -hmm. made one of a number of other places. Oh boy, yeah. So, uh, boy, from there, so fortunately my partners had the means to buy me out of my half of that winery in 2012. So I landed at uh, Metello uh, with my friend Marcus Goodfellow. He and I had a, um, a very uh, similar path in, in proximity. I was at Higgins Restaurant, he was at the Heathman Restaurant. I believe we started our businesses the same year. We were working two blocks apart and doing the same path without knowing it. We'd cross paths every so often, but it took years before we really realized it. And, um, but yeah, he's, he's a good friend. Um, but so I worked with uh, out of his space in 2012 and 13, and then in 14 I moved to the Bjornsson Vineyard in Yola Hills, which has been a great, uh, a great, great source, grape source for us uh, since 2009, and um, and then in 2015 I was able to lease the old. Gosh, the old Brooks space, the old uh, Francis Tannehill space, the old Cuneo Cellar space, the old Hidden Springs Vineyard space. So it's the tin shed up on the Ola Hills Road. Uh, so we're uh, another in that long line of people in that space. And then in 2017, no, 18, uh, I leased another building in Amity right next to the Coelos. For your wine make, for the winemaking itself. Correct, right, yeah. Right. So it's a bit of, that's a pretty, I, a, a tough road to hoe, I imagine, is like kind of an itinerant winemaker. How did you sort of deal with all the different spaces and not really ever being in one place for that long? I don't know. I'm good at that. <laughs> I'm good at just evolving and changing. You know, everything was a new opportunity. I mean, the reason I moved to, um, you know, I got out of the space in Portland. Uh, and I needed a place to land. I landed with Marcus because he's a friend and it, it worked well for both of us. And then the Bjornsons, it was, um, it was a new opportunity because it was a new facility that I helped them with a little bit, but by and large they did it, um, or pretty much all. I just kind of gave them my opinion here and there. But um, they, uh, it was a new opportunity to work in a space right next to the vineyard and to, to, since I sourced a lot of grapes in that vineyard to get everything you know straight away right off the vine into the winery um, uh, but the Eola Hill space came up for lease and I was like that I could use a tasting room that's a good opportunity so I should um, I should go after that and so I did that and at all this while I've been making the commuter cuvee in, in an ever-evolving list of locations as well because I never had the space to do it all and that brand kept growing and then the building in Amity uh, came up and I this building offered me the opportunity to bring it all under one roof mm -hmm. rather than have it here 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 and all that moving around so that was uh, an opportunity that doesn't happen very often so I just I went after it mm -hmm. um, you know, just yeah, seeing the opportunity and doing what it takes to make it happen. How have things changed since you've had a space with a tasting room? Uh, well, that's been wonderful. You know, the uh, just getting more people to try the wines. Um, you know, having a place to do events. Uh, people, you know, having a home is helpful mm -hmm. rather than being um, the vagabond winemaker of the past. It's. Um, you, people know where to find you and it, you I think people perceive you as just a more solid and real business than just a, a virtual business mm -hmm. as it were mm -hmm. 
so I, I and you know growth of wine club and so forth you know it's been it's very helpful and it also helps I think that most of the grapes we buy are from the old Amity Hills so it's very true to who we are as a winery mm -hmm. um, as well because that's that's the style of wines we like are from the Ola Hills which are a little bit more nervy and um, uh, without great acids and a little bit more uh, tension and, and tannic structure. Question I was going to ask you and just went right out of my head. It was a good Story one. My life. So it was a good mm -hmm. one though. So if I can come back with it, with it here. Good spot for editing. It's exactly. <laughs> it's a good good practice here. So um, I'm I'm curious. Uh, oh, that's what it was about. All right. So we'll start the question here. Uh, so you you mentioned you 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 started selling wine. Uh, back this up again. Talk about the difficulties of selling wine uh, mm -hmm. during the recession and. Mm -hmm. and, and Tell me about how your model has changed as the economy has changed and what it's like selling wine now kind of in the, in the current marketplace. Well, because we're, most, we're mostly focused on uh, value-driven Willamette Valley wines, um, we're, uh, we, we've had tremendous luck. I mean, the market, I feel, is, is very crowded. Um, and... Uh, we, we've, you know, we're in now in half the states and four other countries, um, so it, it goes fairly well for us. But it's there's just more and more brands from Oregon, California, and so forth. So it's just it, it is a crowded place. But we've well. I mean, most of what I drink and most of what I like is are, are fairly inexpensive wines, mm -hmm. and so it, I've kind of come full circle on at first not wanting to be a, known for it, to being it's like no, this is this is what we're kind of about is just wines that aren't trophies, wines that are for enjoyment and sharing and conviviality and and, and yeah, hanging out with friends uh, and family, but. Um, so it's also affected our style, trying to make things that are less uh, dense and more lively and energetic and, and effusive, uh, much like the, um, the the situations in which they're hopefully uh, <laughs> enjoyed. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I think you know that's our messaging, and that's what what I like to drink. And and going forward, I think it's um, with younger drinkers I think it it it's what they're looking for maybe I don't know everybody's always wondering that but I you know just honest wines you know wines that are not about um, marketing and branding and um, just want the honest honest uh, presentation of wines and and to be able to offer that at a lower price point is probably helpful because mm -hmm. everybody is uh, increasingly saddled with debt and uh, uh, wages aren't growing. <laughs> how else have consumers changed in, in your mind in the, in, since you started your business? Uh, are the, how are they different now than they were when you began? Much more knowledgeable, by and large. Uh, there's so much information uh, available, uh, so much uh, things like this, blogs, uh, interviews, um, uh, podcasts. I mean, there's just so much 
great information out there. I mean, Levy Dalton's um, podcast uh, is one that I like to listen to because I get to learn from other people that he interviews. Um, I mean, there's just so much information. So people know more and more, and, and I get uh, a lot of really good questions. Um, yeah. So we've, we've done a lot of these interviews, and, and, and a lot of people have mentioned you as a mentor for them in the industry or someone who, the, who's, who inspired them in some way. I, I'm curious, uh, what's it like coming from a place of being mentored by people like Doug Tunnell uh, in the early days to, to being a mentor to the kind of new generation of winemaker? Oh, well, that's, that's great to hear. I mean, I, um, I got a lot of help. Uh, from people, um, and so I just see it as part of the the the, the plan of the uh, Oregon wine industry. You know, you got to help each other. Um, uh, I I wouldn't be where I am without certain people, and so I love to be able to help other people along the way, uh, be it um, with information, opinion, um, yeah, guidance, or helping with a problem. Um, and I think it's what's unique in this industry, or in the Oregon wine industry, uh, is that people, uh, we see ourselves as a, um, an industry uh, in competition with other, in, uh, or other states. You know, we're Oregon, we're in competition with New Zealand, California, and France. Uh, that's our competition, not each other mm -hmm. as much. I mean, that will likely change as we grow, but um, I don't think it'll, uh, I think it's part of our community too. We're just much more com community based. Mm -hmm. um, but California was once like that. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's nice to hear that because, um, again, I, I got a lot of help, so I'm happy to help. You talked about that, that changing, probably possibly in the future. Has it changed since you've been a part? Has, has, does it still feel like the same kind of community? I think, yes, mostly. Mostly it is. Uh, I think there are maybe some factions, but I don't see it changing on a grand scale. Um, I have no specifics there, mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I think you know people are falling in certain camps, maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's speculatory at best. There's no... Mm -hmm. How else has the Oregon wine industry changed since you've been a part of it? There's so many people now. <laughs> you used to be able to count them all your fingers and toes, it seemed. Um, no, there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot more brands out there. Uh, the, the bar, the bottom bar is much higher than it used to be. As I said before, you know, if I started my brand the way I did now, I don't know of how much traction I would get. Um, I was fortunate. Um, and yeah, so you, you have to come out swinging hard mm -hmm. now. You can't come out um, still trying to learn along the way. Um, there's so much opportunity for uh, information still because people share and there's just more experience all around. Mm -hmm. People who are working here have worked all over the world. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of uh, information that's out there. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of new investment. I mean, it's amazing to see how much money is coming from California and France. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I, I 
it's nice to see the, all this new money coming in because it's only going to raise the, the, the tide uh, because these are people who have uh, uh, sales conduit and marketing um, uh, that we, we can't touch. Mm -hmm. So they're going to raise that, well, bring the Oregon name into more people's minds uh, around the country and world. It's well known um, amongst uh, wine savvy people. It's still becoming more well known um, amongst people who are just casual wine drinkers mm -hmm. who don't particularly care about following anything. So, so as as you look ahead, what do you see for the future of, of Oregon wine? What what will it look like in in ten years, maybe? Uh, well, um, that's a good question. That I don't know if I know the answer. I mean, I think it's going to continue to grow, I mean, and I think it's going to have to grow at lower price points because there's this, uh, we're very focused on that 25 to $40 area. I'd say that's probably the, the median of, of the bottle price of our production. Um, uh, but we're going to need lower price points. Um, to grow in volume, um, to really get out into more people's hands because there's just a whole lot of people going for that same small piece of pie in that, that price area. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in um, new varietals and new things uh, growing in, in Oregon. And as our climate shifts warmer, we can get more things ripe consistently. Um, I. Kind of, I'm a big fan of Gamay Noir, uh, from going back to restaurants at Beaujolais to working at Doug Ten with Doug Tonell at Brickhouse, um, and we've been growing, or rather, uh, making Gamay for a few years, and and it's almost as if uh, Gamay is becoming a, a better suited, a grape that's better suited for this climate as it gets warmer. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I see Alagote and Trousseau and all sorts of interesting varietals being planted here, and. Who knows uh, where these will go? But uh, a lot of those those grape varietals just don't have much name, so it can only go so far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about what about fears for the future? What what what's, what's uh, <laughs> what, what concerns have do you have? Major fears for the future. <laughs> Give them the date. Yeah. Uh, well, COVID nineteen is a uh, major problem. I mean, all we're closing our tasting room as of today. Um, everything will be closed down. Restaurants are closing everywhere across the country, starting, well, on the coast at least. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, wine sales are going to take a huge dive. I think it'll hurt the higher end brands more than the lower. And it's definitely going to hurt the brands that are uh, very direct to consumer oriented. Um, but it'll also hurt, you know, I'm very much dependent on distributors and groceries only place where wine's moving. So we will see how this goes. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I have concerns about my employees and being able to uh, afford them and keep them uh, taken care of. And uh, no, this is going to be a painful year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, outside of that, uh, as, you look, <laughs> as you look to the future for your own brand and for yourself, what are you kind of hoping for future ambitions or, or goals? Um, sorry to hit that first. Uh, that, but yeah, um, 
For me, it's growing at the low price points. Uh, again, continuing growing uh, the uh, commuter cuvee. Uh, we also started a new wine this year. Uh, that's a, it's another Pinot Noir, but it's new in approach. Um, it's a very uh, lighter style of Pinot Noir. We just bottled it two weeks ago, um, and it's a, 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 a just trying to be this light and, and natural Pinot Noir. Very very minimal sulfite additions. Um, it's very that that type of wine is getting a lot of traction and press. And I found a lot of those wines, I, I, natural wines, I, I try a lot of them and I see them to be quite hit and miss. Um, and so rather than just cast stones, I just wanted to jump in and see what I could do um, with the goal of making a clean um, natural wine. Mm -hmm. And I think we succeeded, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, I'm very happy with the wine and I, I I didn't get in, I mean, of course I want to make uh, the same wines over and over again, but I, these are, it's a study, you know, it's like constant learning. I just want to learn new things, and so I like to be pushing in these different um, places rather than just constantly focusing on making the same wine over and over again. That's, of course, our 90% of our business, but I still want to take a, a mm -hmm. time and push further, mm -hmm. um, time and money to, to see what else is out there. And so we did this Pinot Noir, uh, we're doing a skin contact Pinot Gris Chardonnay mix coming up to um, just trying to do new things mm -hmm. um, and see what else is possible in, in Oregon. You talked about some of the other varietals that are kind of popular right now are going in. Is there something else you're looking forward to working with? Um, Trousseau actually would be fun. Um, I mean, I've worked with Tempranillo, I've worked with Pinot Blanc and uh, Milan de Bourgogne, um, uh, Syrah, all these things. But um, yeah, Trousseau is something I, re I really like uh, uh, the Savoie um, and uh, want to play with different things. Um, Gosh, I mean Cabernet Franc uh, in the right area was another one I really like, would like to play with. Um, but I want to find the right vineyard to create what I want first. And this kind of goes back to how I was, in 2002, I would have been like, oh, I'll just buy, find some Cab Franc and make it. And now I want, it's like, I want to find the right vineyard for the Cab Franc mm -hmm. in the right climate mm -hmm. before I make it. So mm -hmm. try to steepen the learning curve, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than, um, you know, make it like a, a longer trajectory, mm -hmm. yeah. Something I wanted to ask you earlier and, and slipped my mind, but I, I'm curious about, uh, you talked about the 2002 vintage and, and not having the, kind of having an inkling that your grapes were being picked too early, but not having kind of a voice to say it yet. Right. What point did you develop, develop that voice? What point did you feel like you could make those kinds of decisions and, and have a, a valid opinion? Gosh, probably took a few years to, to, yeah, probably 2005, because that was 2003 and four were both hot. 2005, we had a lot of rain, not, well, not a lot in volume, but just a lot of storms coming through harvest, like a rain a quarter, a half inch, and then four or five days and, and of uh, dry weather. and. Um, really getting comfortable with um, knowing when to pick. Because at that point, we're 
buying from, I think, five different vineyards and four different AVAs. And so we had a lot of variety mm-hmm. of um, soils and cl- microclimates. And uh, yeah, I'd say 2005. You talked earlier uh, about uh, sort of your advice for people getting into the industry and how, how, how much it has changed for you. Uh, what words of wisdom would you offer someone who wanted to get into the industry today? Uh, to start, if they're to start their own business, I would be, um, yeah, be highly focused uh, and small in the beginning and, and grow very incrementally um, uh, and develop a strong direct-to-consumer game um, and, and keep small. Um, distribution is uh, good for larger wineries, not, not as good for smaller wineries because you're just... Um, you're not as uh, worth as much to that distribution company. Um, so, uh, yeah, small and focused mm-hmm. uh, on quality and, and, you know, be good communicator mm-hmm. with your uh, clients and potential clients. Okay. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is Great. there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I don't think so. No? Okay. Um, I don't have a whole lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's a hard. Well, that's right. Thank you it's so bad much. timing. So. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us today, for sharing your story with us, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.